Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm excited to speak with Donald Sherman. Donald is a government ethics and oversight lawyer who's currently the senior vice president and chief counsel at Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, often known by its acronym, CREW, where, full disclosure, he works closely with my wife, Deborah, and it's just so great to have him on the show. In addition to his nonprofit litigation experience at CREW, Donald has worked in all three branches of government. He served for a number of years as senior counsel to ranking member Senator Claire McCaskill on the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Before that, he was chief of staff and senior counsel for oversight and investigations in the Office of General Counsel at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And before that, he worked for Representative Elijah Cummings, then the ranking member of the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. He started his legal career as a law clerk to Honorable Neil E. Kravitz of the District of Columbia Superior Court and worked in private practice. Of interest to me, he also wrote a blog called Somebody Does That, where he interviewed people about cool jobs. So I think Donald's going to fit right in here at How I Lawyer. So he's a uh, proud graduate of both Georgetown University and Georgetown Law. Go Hoyas. Welcome to the podcast, Donald. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for, uh, for having me on. Really, really excited to be here. Sweet. Well, look, let's start from the beginning. I want to hear about what made you decide to become a lawyer and uh, hear a little bit about if what you decided or the reasons you decided still stand today in the law that you practice. Yeah. So, you know, a lawyer is the only thing I ever wanted to be, but I don't know that I sort of was a particularly ambitious kid. It was just the thing that seemed most interesting to me. My mom, I've had asthma since I was nine months old. And so my mom always said, oh, you're going to be a doctor and find a cure for asthma, which, oh God, sounds awful, though. Finding a cure for asthma would be, <laughs> would be great. But in the fifth grade, I had this teacher. Her name was Stacy Divac. She was relatively new. I don't know if it was her first or second year out of school, but obviously we tortured her for it because that's what um, nine and 10 year old morons do. But she was always, you know, having us do these new and sort of unconventional things. You know, she, she brought in gefilte fish and matzah and had us try that. And, you know, she, you know, took us on all these interesting field trips. And, you know, one of the things that um, she did was she, she had us participate in this program called Constitution Works. And we got to be mock Supreme Court justices and have a mock oral argument. I got to be one of the justices. Awesome. And I just remember, I think it was Denver Dispatch versus the United States. It was like a First Amendment case. I can't remember the details. But I just remember being so interested and excited about the role and really um, intrigued at, at this idea of precedent. And how, you know, lawyers through their arguments and justices through their decisions got to be a part of history. And that was really exciting and compelling to me. And so Hmm. that became the thing that I wanted to do. I, you know, wasn't, uh, I I don't know that I had Supreme Court aspirations, 
but and my sort of specific aspirations within the profession were quite a moving target. But that's what got me excited about the law, and it's still the uh, the thing that has gotten me excited about the work that I have done, especially in government and government adjacent roles like the one I have at Crew. Mm-hmm. I love that. And it's so funny because after I've done a bunch of these interviews, the number of times I hear the name of like fourth, fifth, and sixth grade teachers is shockingly high. The names are always different, obviously. Like for <laughs> me, it was, you know, and I say this in the trailer to the podcast that I recorded two years ago, Tina Yalen's sixth grade class, where I got to represent Mr. Scott Free in a mock trial and it changed my life. And it's amazing how those little moments have such an impact on who we are and what we become, even though you sort of uh, torture her. I'm so glad that she gets the props she deserves in your story. So let's fast forward a little bit. So you, you know, you go to Georgetown, you go to Georgetown Law, and you start your career as a judicial law clerk and in private practice, but pretty quickly thereafter move to Capitol Hill and start working in sort of this government oversight space. Talk to me a little bit about sort of how those jobs came about and also what interested you early on in that kind of work. Sure. Um, so, you know, I was at a firm, uh, you know, I think like a lot of uh, law students, I, you know, I was vaguely interested in litigation or what I thought was litigation. And, you know, someone who uh, didn't come from uh, a lot of money, my mom was a teacher, my dad was a truck driver, you know, it seemed like the kind of thing that was at least uh, too much money to turn down without uh, trying it first. And so I went to a firm. And you know, I think at the time I realized that that particular experience wasn't a good fit for me, but and I had some vague notion that I was interested in policy, and so that that sent me on hmm. a path of basically talking to everybody that I could think of about uh, wanting to work on Capitol Hill, and you know I do what people do I you know did the coffees and the whatnot, but it was really when I sort of quasi crashed the law school classmates wedding that, that sort of set me down an entire career path that I, that I just didn't know existed before. So, you know, one of my good friends, Ron Hahn, who actually is in the, um, the uh, career services office at USC law school. Now he was in town for a fellow classmate's wedding. I hadn't been invited to the wedding, but I hadn't seen him since school. So I came to like the cocktail hour and I was talking to him <laughs> and, and another classmate who was there who had summered with me. I was just telling everybody that I was like interested in working on the Hill. This guy, uh, Jan, he knew one person who worked on the Hill at the time, he lived in Oklahoma, and it was somebody that he uh, married to his coworker in Oklahoma who had recently moved back to D.C. And so, you know, at this random event, talking to someone that I never could have anticipated would be there, he put me in touch with the one person that helped me get my first job on wow. the Hill. And wow. it was working – yeah, it was working for the House Ethics Committee, which also happens to be one of the few committees on the Hill where not having prior Hill experience is an asset as opposed to a liability. Hmm. Okay. So I want to I wanna break that down. There's a couple of follow-ups. First of all, it's amazing that like pseudo-crashing a wedding is uh, part of your professional story and professional path. It sounds <laughs> like one of those stories where it's like, you know, my, my dentist's friend's barber shop operator helped me get a job. It's something I tell students all the – all the time, right? It's Absolutely. all about 
maximizing the number of interactions because that's the only number you have control over. You don't know which one's going to be the one that changes your life, but you have control over talking to other people. But, you know, you said that you were going into that conversation with sort of a vague interest in policy. And I think I have students and people who listen who say that, but they don't, when you sort of dig a level deeper, they don't know what policy means as a lawyer. So talk to me about like what you thought policy was and maybe how you frame policy work as a lawyer now. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't really know what policy was then. I thought, oh, you know, I thought policy meant I'll just go work for a congressperson and I don't know, get an issue and write some laws, I guess. I guess. Um, you know, right, the, the, right. I mean, the funny thing is I never got an interview for a policy job on the Hill, so I never had to fake my way through an interview at the time. So I don't know what I actually thought because the first interview I got was for an investigative role, which is exactly what I was looking for but didn't know it. I think now mm. policy development is is pretty complex, but it still um, derives from a lot of the oversight and investigation work that um, mm -hmm. I have done and that we do at Crew. And so, you know, whether it's filing somewhere upwards of two dozen Hatch Act complaints and then having conversations with um, with people on Capitol Hill about how they can strengthen the law to prevent those kinds of abuses from happening long term, or it's um, you know having conversation with partners on the Hill and committees about gaps in uh, the Freedom of Information Act that we've identified through litigation. Mm -hmm. I think now my policy expertise, such that it is, is informed by experience. And maybe that's the big difference, mm -hmm. right? You know, when, uh, you know, 15 years ago, when I was looking for a policy job, I didn't know anything and, and hadn't done anything that would have informed or helped create any sort of uh, passable expertise on policy issues. Um, you know, I'm j I was just all, I guess, book learning and lived experience, but, you know, there was no job experience sure. to speak of that would inform uh, policy, like my approach to policy as it does now. Hmm. And I guess the other follow-up I have is you mentioned that you thought sort of the the big firm litigation route didn't necessarily fit your skill set, but the area that you ended up, which was in investigations and oversight, was something that both did fit your skill set and I, you know, I don't want to misstate your words, but I think you basically said it was the one area on the Hill where a lack of experience on the Hill is actually beneficial. Like, say more about what investigations work on the Hill is and sort of why, why that is the case that less, experience, less Hill experience may be beneficial. You know, I think the challenge for me going into a uh, law firm was I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so, you know, I think law firms are very good at putting work mm -hmm. on your plate because you are a law, uh, person that's graduated from law school and they have lots of work to be done. But but I think it's always better to go into mm -hmm. a firm with some direction or some sense of your interest. And I just didn't have that in the law yet. But one of the things that was helpful to me when I was applying for jobs on uh, when I applied for the job on the ethics committee was I hadn't had a partisan job. And the Ethics Committee is one of the only nonpartisan staffs on the Hill. So because I hadn't had a Hill job before, I wasn't in a mm -hmm. partisan box. And so that made me an attractive candidate um, for both the 
the chair and the ranking member, a Democrat and a Republican, who would then hire me. But also coming from private practice, the one thing that I did have experience with was doing lots of doc review, which is a not insignificant part of being a congressional investigator, whether that's on the ethics side or on the oversight side. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny when I think about sort of law firm hiring sometimes, and I know you're a sports fan, so I, I think this reference may make sense, but tell me if I'm wrong. Sometimes law firms are sort of looking for the best available lawyer, even if they don't have a, spe- a specific role, because they're like, look, if you can sit in a chair and research long enough and you're smart enough and you've taken enough classes, we can teach you all the details, but those those intangibles, we can't teach. So we're going to find the best available uh, mathlete instead of athlete and get them in the door. Does that sound right to you? Is that how law firms think? I'll put it this way. That is a very positive uh, and complimentary assessment of how, at least how I ended up at a firm. And so I will take it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And in terms of that investigations work, like I think people have seen, you know, law and order in suits. They know what they, or they think they know what lawyering looks like. I try to sort of dispel those myths week by week on the show. But talk to me about like a day in the life of an ethics investigator on the Hill, because I think that's something that we don't see from the outside. Like, what are you doing? Who are you communicating with? What's the work product like? What, what, what's that all about? Sure. So, you know, on the ethics committee for a, a, a good period of time, it was sort of a mix of both advice and investigations. So you're fielding calls from staffers about questions about the code of conduct for uh, for members and staff, you know, which being an ethics lawyer and, get in, and especially giving advice as an ethics lawyer, lawyer is always an adventure. You know, you're having conversations with, for example, we'll say uh, a young staffer who has been on a couple of dates with a person and is now looking to mm. accept, uh, looking for a gift exception to accept travel um, international travel from this person that they uh, would like you to agree is a friend um, so that they can accept mm. the travel. But on the investigation side, it's a lot of review. Uh, you know, it starts with, you know, reviewing the underlying facts. You know, a lot of cases that come in, they either come by referral from the Office of Congressional Ethics, uh, which is an ind- independent body that um, investigates um, allegations of misconduct uh, by members and staff, or it's something that where you know there's an ethics scandal that kicks up enough dust in the media that the committee will take it up on its own. Um, in either case, you're doing some background research to identify what the underlying allegations are, what the potential violations of law and the code of conduct might be, and then developing a plan for whether you need more information to make a recommendation to the members of the committee to open a formal investigation, or you're uh, identifying a plan to do that investigation and you know proposing subpoenas and document requests um, to the member, to outside entities for information in furtherance of an investigation. So, you know, it, it is really... Uh, it's it's interesting work. It is challenging work because the rules aren't, um, you know, the congressional rules are sort of exist unto themselves. It's not like you're reviewing a lot of precedent um, or, or mm-hmm. re- necessarily reviewing a lot of case law. But it certainly was, you know, I felt like it was important work 
protect the integrity of the institution. And it was it was fun work. Is it hard being the sort of the office that checks on you when you do something bad? Like, did people avoid you in the lunchroom? <laughs> that is exactly what they did. You know, everybody, you know, like you, you hear about this Hill experience and, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it's a very social place. There are all of these young staffers, there's receptions and, you know, you see these members of Congress. That was not my experience. You know, I had a handful of friends who worked in Hill offices and they talked to me, but mostly it was like my, you know, handful of colleagues on the ethics committee, we would get lunch together um, and, you know, we would never be invited, nor could we uh, attend, you know, the kinds of receptions and parties that, um, you know, you would typically think of and you typically hear about and often fairly get a bad rap um, on the Hill. That was not my Hill experience. And so, you know, we, we kept to ourselves. I account many of those colleagues as good friends to this day. But yeah, uh, we we were not the, the happy fun bunch, or at least we weren't invited to the happy fun bunch parties. Right, right. Fun as we might right. have Right, it makes sense. It's, uh, you know, you got to be the, the person who's able to do the investigation and ask the questions. So uh, you have to kind of be above reproach. It makes a ton of sense. You know, after you worked on the, uh, on the, on the House side, you had opportunities to work first in the executive branch and then on the Senate side, but still doing a lot of this same sort of oversight and ethics work. Talk to me a little bit about just the differences to somebody who's unfamiliar of of practicing in this practice area, but in different either branches of government or parts of government. Sure. Um, you know, the like there are specific differences in the rules between the House and the Senate, but I think fundamentally, um, you know, the House is just it's a bit of a circus, right? It's a bit of a jungle. It's rough and tumble. The committee chairs have unilateral subpoena authority. So, you know, a lot of them see no interest in um, being cooperative or judicious when they issue subpoenas. And so you're just sort of running in the thick of it. Um, the Senate, mm. uh, like just by general practice, moves more slowly. The investigations move more slowly. And subpoenas, most subpoenas have to be issued with the by a vote, and it has to be uh, and usually a a bipartisan vote, um, or at least there's a lot more process involved. And so, it, you know, the investigations just tend to be a bit more methodical. Also, because the Senate confirms high-level appointees, they also have slightly different tools in their toolkit to get information from, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the targets of investigations. Like in the House, I did, I don't know, probably 100 transcribed interviews of uh, senior government officials, either as a first chair or a second chair. Wow. In the Senate, I didn't do any. But, you know, I did, inv- I, I did interviews of nominees seeking to get uh, confirmed, including Christian Nielsen, when she, before uh, his GAC, um, for her nomination to become... DHS secretary. So, you know, I think there are different levers and a different temperament of the institutions. I think on the administrative, on, on, in, hmm. when you're in the administration and you're sort of preparing to be on the receiving end of oversight, I always look back at that experience fondly. I don't know that I would describe that aspect of it as fun, right? You're always waiting for some shoe to drop. If I recall, you're always thinking about there's the 
things mm. that are happening in your agency that the Hill is already engaged on and you know about. There's the things that the Hill is doing that uh, and you know could come at any time that you don't know about. And then there's the stuff happening at your agency that you don't know about that could invite a, a congressional investigation. And you know those last two categories of shoes can drop at any at, at any time, and you just sort of have to drop everything to uh, to deal with them. Sure. You know, one of the things it sounds like is common to all of these jobs is the ability to both sort of go through written information and also to get information by interviewing people in various formats. Just as a sort of brass tacks, like how do you think about that fact development work? What are some of the tools and techniques that are important to you having done this for as long as you have? Yeah, you know, you obviously have to know your facts or you have to know what you know and you have to know what you don't, right? And that takes careful study. And you have to know enough to know what you don't know. And, you know, that's hard too, especially because, you know, I worked on committees of pretty broad jurisdiction. So on oversight, oversight can investigate any matter at any time. Um, you know, I worked on investigations uh, related to allegations of political targeting at the IRS, a botched gun interdiction operation on our border with Mexico. I worked with the NFL and the NFLPA on their substance abuse policy. And then, you know, I was asked to work on, you know, sort of bigger policy, more policy-focused investigations like college affordability and things like that. And so, you know, it sort of runs the gamut. But, like, in, in terms of approaching fact-gathering, you have to do as much homework as you can do. Like, that includes, like, scouring government websites, talking to outside experts, mm-hmm reading lots and lots of news and other things in the public record. Sometimes it uh, includes talking to whistleblowers. One of my first investigation on oversight was this, this investigation on the Southern border and the Republican majority, they had already been in touch with the whistleblowers. And, and so we were a little bit at, at a disadvantage, but uh, funny as it is, the key whistleblower in that investigation wrote a book about his experience, uh, which included a description of when he first met me, which is always a little bit weird. Oh, wow. It, it seems like this high drama thing. You know, we're, uh, he wrote about the interview that we did and the questions that I asked, which were through some fault of my own, but uh, some not were not well-informed. Um, so that's memorialized in, in a book somewhere. But he also uh, talks about me walking into a bar and seeing him sitting with the Republican staffers and me just sort of walking up mm. to the table and like, hey, guys, uh, what's everybody doing here? And uh, getting myself a beer and, and, and parking down with them. So, you know, it, there's a there's a lot of fact-gathering work that needs to be done. There's a lot of work to figure out how to develop rapport <laughs> with a witness if you can. Um, and sometimes wow. you just need to be prepared to go into these situations with no idea of what you're walking into because, you know, especially in the minority, you're not the one setting the interviews. You're not the one driving the agenda. So, you know, you, you try and prepare as much as you can, but sometimes you just have to fly blind. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I I think that makes so much sense from my limited interaction with, you know, doing things like depositions, right? The more you know, the better footing you are, but you don't always have that benefit. And that first answer can go can go totally different place than you thought. And if you're not listening and you're not ready to play it by ear a little bit and let the witness go or the witness is going to go, it's impossible. And and it's good to hear that someone with as much experience as you have thinks the same thing, that it's really about, you know, knowing what you don't know, which is really hard. So I want to talk about your move out of government now. So we've spent some time talking about your time in government um, and, you know, of late, mm-hmm. minus a, a brief stint, which maybe we'll, we'll talk about uh, in the administration, you've, you've, been, you've moved to the other side. And so I'm just curious about what, what brought you um, to Crew and to sort of the nonprofit uh, external organization more generally. And then we can talk a little bit about how that's different and how that's the same than, than the work you were doing. Sure. So I, I very much consider myself a government guy. I, I love being in government. And not, not only did I love the work, but I, I take great pride in it. But, you know, one of the things that happened when um, Trump was elected was, you know, I was concerned about um, what seemed quite clearly to be a, a crisis of, of ethics in the executive branch. Um, I went to the Senate in part because I thought that the Senate could be a, a force for promoting accountability. That's always hard when you're in the minority, which we were at that time. But also, quite frankly, the Senate's not built to do the kind of oversight that I thought that was needed in that moment. And so, you know, I was working for Senator McCaskill, which was a fantastic experience. Um, She's a great boss, was a great senator. But I started thinking about Hmm. if I might want to make a move back to the House or do something else. And through my network, uh, someone pinged me about a job at Crew. And I had known Crew for my time in the Ethics Committee when uh, they they didn't have uh, such great things to say about our work. But I also knew that unlike some of the other organizations um, that sort of sprung up because Trump was elected president, Crew had been in government ethics for 15 years prior, you know, and that they had a proven track record um, and credibility on government ethics issues. And mm-hmm. that was compelling to me because I wanted to be someplace where I felt like um, – I could use the particular set of skills that I had developed, such as they were, um, to meet the moment. Um, and I think Crew, uh, through its litigation and through um, you know through its policy work and you know its its research, um, really was doing that. And I felt like I had something to contribute, and and so I pursued and you know was fortunate enough to to get an opportunity to come here. And what's that relationship like between sort of private litigation or private research or private policy work like this, the work crew does versus sort of that internal congressional oversight? You sort of, I think we're hinting at, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but hinting at there's a tension there of, you know, internal ethics work and ethics work from the outside. How do you see those as sort of, are they overlapping? Are they different tools? Do they have the same purposes? How do you think about that? Spectrum. They're not the same tools, but but they certainly can um, complement each other. Um, and I think in an ideal world, they complement each other when it's appropriate, and um, and you know may sort of be at odds when it's appropriate. So you know, I think just just a, sort of a couple of examples. One, 
you know, you look at the emoluments cases um, uh, against Donald Trump in 2017. Um, Crew was the first organization to sue Donald Trump for violating the emoluments clauses of the Constitution, and also the second organization to sue Donald Trump for uh, violations of the uh, foreign and domestic emoluments clauses of the Constitution. Hmm. There was a third lawsuit. It was from Congress. It was filed after those first two ones, and I think you know the reality was was that Crew because. It's not a giant bureaucracy with lots of different members and lots of different uh, opinions and in a position to actualize things pretty quickly, uh, was able to move and take that action before Congress could check all the boxes and corral all, you know, hurt all the cats, if you will, um, to bring a lawsuit. Um, and so, you know, that's an example of where, you know, like sure. someone on the outside and someone and folks on the inside are sort of trained on the same issue, but someone on the outside can pursue it in a different way and and possibly a more effective or certainly a speedier way than uh, can be done on the Hill. You know, by contrast, you know, there are things like impeachment where the best that you can hope for on the outside is that you can provide some influence and insight and advocacy so that the members with the actual authority to take action are doing something. You know, another example is with FOIA, right? Hmm. Crew sued and successfully got the memo from Attorney General Barr to uh, that was the sympathetic explanation um, and potentially erroneous explanation of the Mueller report. Congress for a number of institutional reasons, uh, which may be good or not good, doesn't use the FOIA, right? They obviously have independent authority to get documents and information. But while, you know, those cases can often end up tied into court and have some some success and some frustration, Crew was able to sue under the Freedom of Information Act and after a couple of years um, get that memo and make it publicly available in a way that Congress either could not or would not. And so, you know, there are different tools in the toolkit, um, but also I think uh, the, you know, sometimes the process, despite not having political power, you know, an organization on the outside can be freer to move more quickly um, and use different tools to, to promote accountability. You know, like another good example of this is our work on the 14th Amendment. You know, obviously the January 6th committee did an exhaustive investigation of the attack on the Capitol and made recommendations that, um, you know, government officials involved um, who took an oath uh, be disqualified from office. While they were doing that, crew went out to New Mexico and brought a case directly on behalf of uh, through New Mexico residents to remove a government official from office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Again, our ability to take action isn't defined by um, you know which party is in power in uh, in mm. Congress. So that is a a not insignificant data point that allows you know that allows us to move um, and take action on issues where Congress may be hamstrung. Right, the January 6th Committee doesn't exist anymore. And so, you know, there's uh, there's there's a question of, well, right. who's going to take that baton, right? And I think, you know, folks in the government community like crew um, have to be ready, willing, and able to take the baton to 
help bring about the accountability that the January 6th committee identified as being necessary. It's a really interesting and thoughtful answer about a really sort of hard question about thinking that as somebody who's a lifelong resident of Washington, D.C., I've seen live with friends and family members the sort of the feeling of what government can do and what everyone else who's working in this town outside the halls of of government can do differently and powerfully. And, And I think that's a really, really interesting and thoughtful way of thinking about it. The next question I have is about sort of what is success in your work? Like so much of what you do is is long-term. Um, so much of what you do is is reviving old doc- doctrines or creating brand new legal theories that either are untested or haven't been tested in quite some time. What is success in your work, whether that's sort of small s success or the longer term uh, capital success? And maybe how is that different than sort of what it looks like for a government committee to find success. In both, you have to take the long view and celebrate the short-term wins, Hmm. right? I supervise our legal team, and I work with a number of dynamic and creative lawyers, one of whom who's been here for, I think, seven or eight years Hmm. working to try and get Citizens United overturned. Right. Like that's not something that's gonna happen in a day. And you know, with the current makeup of the Supreme Court, like I don't know that he or I would feel confident putting a uh wagering a guess on you know when that might happen. But you know, I think we view success as incremental progress, trying to bring about as much accountability and as much transparency under existing law as we as we can and trying to bring about as much accountability for bad actors as we can in the current legal regime, all the while keeping our our eyes trained on hopefully uh, overturning what we believe is a uh, a wrongly decided decision that is incredibly bad for democracy. But, you know, I think you don't go into this work unless you are optimistic about government and resilient in your approach to work. And I think... Mm-hmm. Those are similar qualities as, you know, I think most people that go into public service, right? You know, you take, for example, uh, just this week, you know, President Biden uh, fired the architect of the Capitol after a pretty scathing IG report identifying like financial mismanagement of government funds and like, you know, weird and highly problematic conduct like impersonating a law enforcement officer and giving quote-unquote, patriots tours of the Capitol while the facilities were closed in the fall of 2020. And so that's not a, that's not a position in government that anybody cares about. But um, in the fall, we kicked up enough dust after this IG report happened uh, you know, that some folks on the Hill started to take notice. There was a hearing um, about it um, last week. And based on the news and fallout there, something, you know, there was accountability for for Blanton. Now, that's not going to be the case in every situation. Certainly, there's accountability that is hopefully coming for Donald Trump and others involved in the attack on the Capitol. But you sort of take it it as it comes. The other thing that I would say is, um, especially around January 6th, is... I am someone who spent a good deal of time reading legal precedent from what happened hmm. after the Civil War, what state legislatures did, what Congress did to hold people accountable 
for being Confederates and, um, and for being engaged in rebellion against the United States. One of the things that weighs on me on a daily basis is the words of my former boss, Elijah Cummings, who uh, a couple of years ago, before he passed, obviously said, people will ask us when we're dancing with the angels, what do we do to keep our democracy intact? And I think about what the historical record is going to look like, what legal precedent is going to look like in the aftermath of the insurrection on January 6th. And will there be a sufficient body of case law? Will there be a historical record demonstrating that there was accountability for the assault on our democracy? And so, you know, those are the things that I think about. That is what I would consider success. It doesn't mean that there isn't going to be failure along the way or setbacks along the way. But I think being generally optimistic, um, taking your victories, small as they are, as they come, and remaining trained on the larger goals is something that is, I've seen as being consistent within my work, um, both in the nonprofit sector and in government. And when you talk about sort of this important work, how do you think about the balance between litigation and legislation, right? I mean, you know, one of the big changes historically, right, is Congress goes through new phases and approaches, and the courts certainly uh, have gone through many different sort of uh, versions over the last uh, 100, 100, 200 years. How do you think about that balance, at least today, about how to bring this work and do this work well using litigation as one tool and legislation as another? I, you know, I think you got to use all the tools in the toolkit, right? And, you know, and and, and, like, this is going to sound cynical, but I don't mean it this way. You got to take advantage of scandals, right? Like that, like that is the only time that Congress actually implements reform is when there is a big enough Mm -hmm. scandal that kicks up enough dust that the public is animated and the media are animated um, about it. And so being ready for that moment, whether it's with, you know, having your facts uh, lined up so that you can advocate for changes in the law or being able to, or or being ready to sue um, to uh, bring about accountability in the court, you have to be prepared for those moments and you never necessarily, you don't necessarily know when they're going to come, but I think we try to use every tool in the toolkit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as, as you all know, um, you know, we have a really dynamic policy team and, you know, we work pretty closely with the, with the legal team so that, you know, our advocacy is informed by the accountability work that we do. Right. Like, you know, if there are gaps in the law being exploited, then it's time to talk Mm -hmm. to Congress about changing the law. Um, And, you know, if there are uh, lessons to be learned from, you know, scandals that we expose, then we want to make sure that, you know, that is included in our testimony and statements for the record and our advocacy up on the Hill. We've heard a lot about sort of how you got here and what you do. The the third leg of the three-legged stool of how I lawyer is about how to do it well. And so I just would would be curious to hear about, you know, you run a team now and, and you've been doing this work for some time. What do you think that someone should sort of look in the mirror and see in themselves to 
if they think this sounds interesting to me and I want to do this work, what should they look in the mirror? What skills might they have? What interests might they have? What temperaments might they have that, that suit them well to getting into sort of government oversight and ethics type work? Doing oversight on the Hill, especially on committees of general jurisdiction and even the ethics committee, right? Like you're moving from substantive issues that are Hmm. uh, really divergent, right? right? Like this isn't like, you know, being an energy uh, lawyer or a policy expert on, you know, taxes, right? Um, For, you know, one ethics investigation, one, one member alone, I had to learn about tax policy. I had to learn how rent control and rent stabilized uh, housing worked in New York. And I'm from New York, but I Hmm. never had to deal with that before. You know, I had to understand how financial disclosures work. And then I had to learn some things about the real estate market, right? Like that's one investigation. Um, And then, you know, going to oversight, you know, you have to learn... you not only have to learn things quickly enough to understand an investigation and be able to distill it for members and for the public, but then you have to leave it. And so, you know, if you're someone that prefers to work with, you know, in one lane and, you know, prefers to work with, so in, in a regimented way, then this is probably not the space for you, which is, which is fine. I tend to be a generalist. Which, um, you know, when you get to my my point in my career is always a little bit uncomfortable because I feel like there's a tension where people want you to be expert in something. But I think that there is a great deal of expertise in being a generalist, right? Like it is a particular mm. s- skill set to be able to drop somebody into uh, an operation and have them get quickly up to speed and be able to um, to navigate it. Um, you know, without years and years of, of experience doing that substantive thing. Now, obviously, I'm biased because I'm talking hmm. about my own skills, such as they are. But you know, I, I, I think that's that's certainly something that has served me well, and I think I, I have seen it in in a lot of my colleagues who have thrived in this space as well. Yeah, it's it's a surprisingly common answer on how I lawyer that people, the best lawyers are the ones who are curious and that, you know, being able to, to sort of be curious about something that you've never heard about, learn it, learn it really well, and then move on to the next thing. I think that's a very valuable skill for all lawyers, but it sounds like for your work, it's sort of essential in a, in a profession that's gotten so siloed. Um, your silo is more skills-based than, than topic-based. Although given everything else you said, I, th- I think you may be underselling the level of expertise on uh, on substantive areas as well. You know, the other question that I get pretty frequently from, from law students, and this goes back to where we started, is they come to law school wanting to, to work in government or work in the nonprofit space or use their law degree to make the world a better place. Like that is the North Star of many students who come to law school. And then the practical realities set in, the hierarchies set in, uh, people go to law firms, they try it out. And people are often a little bit concerned about being able to transition sort of, you know, a couple years into their career into the kinds of spaces that you were able to transition to. What kinds of recommendations do you have for those folks who may have started their path in private practice and are considering moving to government or non-governmental spaces? Is it networking? Is it pro bono cases? Is it law school classes, skills, what are the things you'd recommend for those folks? Get your money right. 
whatever, like whatever the situation is, whatever that means for you. Right. Like mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to have a scholarship for law school, which is the number one reason why I was able to leave a firm within two years of graduating. So like make sure that you do whatever you need to do, financial planner, whatever, so that you can make that move. You can make less money um, and afford whatever lifestyle you want before moving to the nonprofit or government sector. In terms of skills, like honestly, I think getting real practical legal skills, right? Whether that's at a firm, whether that's at a public defender's office or you know prosecutor's office, um, whether that's clerking, that is always going to serve you well. It is the you know mm-hmm. law school is a lot about a lot about checking boxes, right? <laughs> like there's still quite a bit of that as you move along in your profession. And, you know, being able to demonstrate that you have real lawyering skills is never going to hurt you, even if you don't want to lawyer or don't want to litigate afterwards. Um, So I, you know, I would say that as well. I think from the networking perspective, I have a couple of pieces of advice. One, tell everybody that you know what you want to do. Like, you don't need to be like pushy about it. But again, my entire career exists. Because I had a conversation with someone about my aspirations that I did not expect to see, did not have any idea could help me. And we weren't even that close when we were having that conversation. We are now close friends. um, But at that point in time, he was a friend of a friend, an acquaintance from from law school and from, from the summer. So you should be very intentional about that. I think the other thing that you should uh, do is... Make sure that you network with your network, right? The people that are your closest friends, the people that are in your family, are the people that will help you regardless of who you are um, and you know what you do, right? I remember distinctly, I was trying to meet the White House Counsel because the White House Counsel's office helps identify people for oversight jobs at agencies. And so I was talking to Deborah's employer, ACS, and went to their holiday party. And um, somebody was going to introduce me to somebody who was going to introduce me to the White House counsel. So I get to this party, and my contact at ACS says, oh, hey, I'm going to introduce you to someone who used to work here. They work very closely with the White House counsel's office, and she can put you in touch. Then she said the person's name. This person, Christine, is someone who I have known since I was 10 years old. Like, we are close friends. We call each other siblings. The only reason that this had not happened before is because we are such close friends that we never talked about work. Mm. We never talked about, like, our career aspirations. We talked about relationships. We talked about casa from school. We talked about missing New York, right? But this is someone who unquestionably would do whatever she could to help advance my career I just never asked her because it never crossed my mind, Mm. right? Like, don't, like, you have to start with the people that care about you the most before you go trying to recruit some strangers to do something for you, right? Start with your network and, like, your inner circle, your kitchen Mm -hmm. cabinet, and be intentional with them before going to ask strangers to do something that you haven't asked your best friend. Hmm. Wow. Well, normally I I always end by asking for a piece of advice or something you wish you knew, but I think I think we already covered that. So I'm so grateful yeah. for it. I think 
you know, I think that's so right is, is, is building your network and, and relying on your networks. Network is such a powerful tool that I've seen uh, time and again in my own career. And, and, and you've shared your story and how it helped you. Well, look, Donald, it's been great to spend the, the last sort of better part of an hour together. And uh, I just wish you the best of luck on all the big cases you have going on and all the big work you're doing. We're, we're lucky to have you uh, beating the drum for democracy over at Crew. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking a break for it. And uh, obviously, uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. Thank you. I do have one other thing to add, if that's okay. Please go for it. If you got advice, go for it. <laughs> Uh, no, the, honestly, the number one piece of advice I, I give whenever I'm asked is be nice. Law school is a place where, um, that I think is wrongly, um, characterized as being fairly cutthroat and competitive, but one being nice is good for the world. But two, if you're the most cynical person in the world, being nice means that there are people that want to be nice to you. And if you do favors for people easily, It makes it easier for you to ask favors of people, right? It is a skill, just like anything else. And so Mm -hmm. if you are nice, people will remember that just as much as they remember if you were a jerk in law school. And your career is long, but it could be pretty short if everybody that you went to law school with thinks you're a jerk. So uh, yeah, that's, that's the other piece of advice that I give. Absolutely. Uh, well, we're we're definitely in agreement on that one. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time, Donald. And uh, yeah, best of luck. Thank you. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.